Our first reading is taken from Psalm 91, verses 9 to 12. Because you have made the Lord your refuge, the Most High your dwelling place, no evil shall befall you, no scourge come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And our second reading uh, is found on, in Mark 1, 9 to 13. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels waited on him. Well, so that was Christmas. I hope you had fun, to paraphrase John Lennon. But now it's all over for another year. Have you taken your tree down yet? Had a friend posting on Facebook that their tree was already outside the door, ready to be taken off to the recycling place. Does yours stay up until 12th night, maybe? I think this, we're going to have to take the decorations off this next week, but it's being taken and recycled on the 6th. So we're getting, getting pretty much to Epiphany with our Christmas tree here. Maybe your thoughts are already starting to turn to the coming year. Maybe to going back to work, or to planning some holidays, or to maybe New Year's resolutions. Are you there with those yet? Uh, we've already started taking resolutions that I have no idea whether we're going to keep about things like uh, alcohol consumption and eating stuff that's putting on the weight. By the way, this, this suit is getting definitely smaller. I'm at the, I discovered that I kind of make it hang there, and that's not, that's not edifying. Uh, anyway, for the next few months here at Bloomsbury in our preaching, we're going to be looking at the story of Jesus that we find in Mark's Gospel. And with... Christmas carols still ringing in our ears. It's still okay to sing Christmas carols in church this week. It's interesting to note that Mark's gospel is definitely the least Christmassy of all of the gospels. Neither Mark nor John have shepherds, wise men, a stable, a star, a virgin, a doubting husband, or indeed the archangel Gabriel. If you want those things from your Christmas story, and indeed most of the other things that we think of as being essential to the Christmas story, you have to go to Matthew and Luke's version of Jesus' birth. John's Gospel has the wonderful prologue, which I enjoy reading every year so much, the Bloomsbury Carol celebration that we have here. You know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and I won't go on. Mark's gospel has, well, not much, if we're honest about it. It just starts with John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, and then it jumps straight to the baptism and temptation of Jesus. There's no nativity story at all in Mark's gospel. So it does make you think, doesn't it, if we'd only had Mark... You know, if Matthew and Luke hadn't happened or had been lost to history, we wouldn't have Christmas. I know, was that a bit too enthusiastic? I have to tone it down. We wouldn't have Christmas. 
Mark, of course, scholars tell us, was the earliest of the four Gospels to be written. And we could, if we wanted, engage in all sorts of interesting speculation about why it was that when firstly Matthew and then Luke decided to expand Matthew's gospel with extra material, they decided to add the stories that we now know as Christmas. Did they feel perhaps that Mark wasn't being quite clear enough on the subject of the incarnation? Maybe they thought it needed spelling out a bit more clearly what it meant to say that Jesus was the Son of God. Maybe they wanted to give Jesus a birth story that would rival the origin stories of the Greek and Roman gods. Maybe they wanted to show how Jesus was the Jewish Messiah in fulfillment of the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. Well, the thing is, If we look closely, Mark does address all of these issues. He just does it much more succinctly. So, in our reading from this morning, I'm just going to go through the reading this morning and point out some of the ways Mark addresses what we might think of as classic Christian themes, uh, Christmas themes. So, in our reading from this morning, we hear this voice from heaven proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have this moment of divine anointing of Jesus, which is really as powerful as any mythological initiation that we might find in the Greek and Roman traditions. And we have a clear parallel between Israel's early years of wandering in the wilderness, you know, between Egypt and Promised Land, and Jesus being sent into the wilderness to be tempted. So whilst I'm not suggesting that we don't need Matthew and Luke, they're fine, that's where we get many of our stories from, I am suggesting that if you've had enough by now of choirs of angels and singing shepherds, you might find all you need to know about Jesus in the rather briefer and less seasonally festive Gospel of Mark. And these five short verses that we're looking at today are immensely rich in symbolism, imagery and theology. Verses 1 to 8 of Mark's Gospel have covered John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness. And for those of you who were here last Sunday, this ties in with the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth, his parents, which we were looking at last week. And if you weren't here, you can catch up on the podcast, just saying. For so then, after John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness, Jesus comes from Nazareth in Galilee to be baptized by John in the Jordan. So far, so good. John has clearly been baptizing for a while, calling people to repent of their sins and prepare themselves for the arrival of someone who will baptize them with the Holy Spirit rather than with water. And so Jesus is baptized, as many others had been baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan. But this is where it starts to get weird. As Jesus is coming up out of the water, he has what can only be described as an apocalyptic moment. If you remember our sermon series from last year on the book of Revelation, and again, if you missed it, you know, see the podcast, you may remember that the word apocalyptic comes from the Greek word for unveiling or revealing. So, You know, a bride at her wedding, if she has a traditional veil who unveils her face, 
could be said to be apocalypsing her face. That which was hidden is suddenly revealed. The veil is lifted away. And within the first century Jewish tradition, stories of heavenly visions or divine voices were always stories of apocalypse, stories of revelation, stories of the unveiling of otherwise hidden realities. And this, unexpectedly, is what we get going on as Jesus comes up out the water. Suddenly, here at the baptism of Jesus, we find the baptism invaded by this dramatic, apocalyptic imagery. The heavens are torn apart, things otherwise unseen are made known. Now, I mean, I've done plenty of baptisms in my time, a good number of them here at Bloomsbury, but in other places too. This has never happened when I've done a baptism. I mean, I've prayed for people to receive the Holy Spirit after baptism, but I've never seen heaven opened and heard a divine voice. This is not normal baptismal practice. There is a reference here to the Hebrew Scriptures, but you have to be slightly alert to spot it. We've seen during our sermons in Advent that the Old Testament prophets were longing for a day when God would intervene in human history. And they often expressed this longing most strongly when things were not going so well for the people of Israel. So, the times of exile or warfare or political uncertainty, those were the points in the Jewish story where the Jewish prophets would speak most longingly of their hope that God would be revealed in power. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? If everything's going all right, you're not crying, oh God, where are you? But when things are really tough, that's when you cry out for God to intervene. And the book of Isaiah captures this longing beautifully in chapter 64, verse 1. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Um, this is a picture by Mark Chagall. This is slightly uh, self-indulgent of Liz and I, but we, uh, we went to um, the Chagall Museum in the Côte d'Azur earlier, uh, earlier this year even, and this is one of the beautiful paintings that Mark Chagall did of uh, the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, writing at a time of exile for the people of Israel, says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. So the mountains would quake at your presence. And then Mark tells us of the baptism of Jesus. And what happens at the baptism of Jesus? The heavens are torn open. It's a reference. Mark is trying to signal something important here for those of us who are a little bit alert and ready to spot it. He's saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of the longing of Isaiah. And the tearing open of the heavens, the apocalyptic unveiling of otherwise hidden truths, is speaking of the removal of the barrier between humans and their God, and of a new relationship between God and humanity. So there's a reference to Isaiah being fulfilled in Jesus. The revelations continue. The Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. And, yes, you guessed it, there's another allusion to the Hebrew Bible here, this time to the story of Noah in the early chapters of Genesis. This is a picture of a dove with an olive branch from the catacombs in Rome. Well, we all know the story of the Great Flood, 
of how the waters of chaos overwhelms the earth, bringing destruction to all except the faithful few on the ark. And then about how of after 40 days and 40 nights of rain, the waters started to subside, and Noah sent out a dove three times to see if the waters were subsiding. And the first time, the dove flew around and just came back to him. And then the second time, it came back with an olive leaf in its beak. And then the third time, it didn't come back at all. And so Noah knew that the chaos was ending, and soon the new world could begin. Also, perhaps less well-known within the Jewish rabbinic tradition is a reference to the Spirit of God sweeping over the waters of creation, being said to resemble a dove kind of hovering over her young. And there's another reference here to the prophecy of Isaiah, where the suffering servant who bears the sins of the world is described as, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Mark has got all of these layers in the back of his mind, in these just few words he uses to describe the spirit of God coming down on Jesus as a dove. So in the descent of the spirit on Jesus at his baptism, all these images combine to signify that God is coming to the chaos of the world. It's no longer the chaos of the waters of the flood, it's just the chaos of the world, bringing new hope, new life, and new starts and also bringing forth justice to all peoples. But the revelations continue. Not only are the heavens torn apart in fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, not only does the spirit descend on Jesus as the primal dove of peace and justice, but a voice is heard coming from heaven, declaring Jesus to be the son of God and speaking words of approval over him. And yes, you guessed it, of course. There's another reference to the Hebrew Bible here too. This time it's Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, when the king in Jerusalem is declared to be the anointed one of God. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, he said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Well, this Psalm chapter 2 was a text which directly fed into the whole Jewish messianic hope. The hope that they had that one day a king like David would come and sort out all their problems. And the reference to this at Jesus' baptism firmly positions not just Jesus as God's son, but Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah of Israel. So you can see that in these five short verses, Mark is piling layer upon layer upon layer of symbolism, reference after reference to the Hebrew tradition, all the while building a case, which is that Jesus is the Son of God, in a way that is worthy of attention by those reading the Gospel. So I want to return for a moment to what I described as the apocalyptic nature of Jesus' baptism. I've already suggested that what we have here is an event that is apocalyptic or revelatory in the sense that it reveals something profound about how heaven views the life, ministry, and person of Jesus. But there's another layer to this. You see, in Mark's time, the first century, apocalyptic language was always the language of political dissent. Oh, come on, we've got over the election. 
You're talking politics again. Well, I am, because it's here in Mark's Gospel, you see. Apocalyptic language is always the language of political dissent. Apocalyptic imagery, and it was very popular in the first century. The Jews loved this stuff. It always envisioned the end of the world, by which they meant the world ruled by the powers of sin and death. So there's a layer of metaphor here. Just as you or I might say, you know, let's say somebody who's really dear to us dies. You know, some terrible, tragic event in our lives. We all have them from time to time. We might say that, for me, was the end of the world. Because the old world, which had that person in, has gone, and a new uncertain world, which will be different, has come into being. So apocalyptic literature uses language about the end of the world to say that an old world has passed and a new world is coming into being. And books from the Hebrew Bible that used apocalyptic imagery, such as Daniel or Ezekiel, were always written in times of political turmoil. And they always expressed the hope of the oppressed but faithful people of God that the world dominated by the wicked powers would come to an end. So whenever you get apocalyptic imagery in the New Testament, it's always worth paying attention to what it's saying politically as well as spiritually. And there are some clues here. Following his baptism, with its apocalyptic rending of the heavens, Jesus is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness, where he engages in a struggle with a figure called Satan. Regrettably, I don't have time this morning to give a detailed exploration of Satan in the Bible. But just to note that what we've got here is not some kind of bad version of God. This is not a satanic magneto to a divine Professor Xavier. This is not a satanic Joker to a divine Batman. This is not a satanic Lex Luthor to a divine Superman. You get the idea, I could go on. Rather, the name Satan simply means, in this context, accuser or adversary. And the Satan who confronts Jesus in the wilderness is that seductive voice which whispers doubt or temptation to our deepest needs and desires. I hear that voice sometimes, and I'm sure you do too. The little voice of doubt, the little voice of temptation, which just taps into the thing we most want at that moment. The wilderness is the place where Jesus goes to gain self-knowledge, to face his demons, so to speak, and his temptations, and to overcome them. And which of us can truly say that we know ourselves? if we haven't faced up to our demons. For some of us, that involves talking to someone else. My year of weekly psychotherapy was really, really helpful in confronting and exercising some of my demons, so to speak. And before Jesus could begin his public ministry, of casting evil out of the world, he needed to be very sure that evil didn't have a hold on his heart. 
There have been enough cases down the years of religious leaders falling prey to their base desires for Jesus to need to make sure that he had faced his humanity squarely and confronted his demons. But this isn't just a 40-day wilderness journey of self-knowledge. This isn't Jesus going on some kind of 40-day wilderness spiritual retreat. Mark tells us that there is a deep spiritual battle going on here. Jesus is waited on by angels, and Satan is in league with the wild beasts. That's what Mark tells us. And to understand this properly, you guessed it, we have to delve back into the Hebrew Scriptures. This time to that deeply apocalyptic book of Daniel which was written about 200 years before the time of Jesus. Clearly, the stories it's telling are set about 600 years before the time of Jesus, but the book comes from about 200 years before the time of Jesus. And it was written to inspire the Jews of that period to resistance against the Greek invasion of Israel by telling them stories of their hero Daniel during the time of exile in Babylon. And in the book of Daniel, the oppressive rulers are described as the beasts. And the angels of heaven do battle against them. So the mention in Mark's gospel of the wild beasts and the angels in the wilderness with Jesus and Satan gives us an insight into the nature of Jesus' ministry as it will unfold over the coming years. It will be an apocalyptic battle between good and evil in the world, which will have political overtones to it. It's going to involve the Romans. Jesus comes to the world to cast out evil and to bring release from those powers which oppress and distort humanity. And those powers take shape politically in the world. They did then. And they still do. So, what's the battle before us? In many ways, surely this is still the mission of the church. To bring release to those who are captive. To bring healing to those who are sick. To bring new light to those living in darkness. To cast out evil and announce that a new and better way of being human has been made real in the coming of Jesus. Maybe our mission is that of Jesus. But we're not done with the imagery yet. I told you Mark packs a lot into a few verses. The 40 days of Jesus' temptation is no accidental number. We've already seen, it, it, seen in it an echo of the rain that fell in the story of Noah for 40 days and 40 nights. But I think there's also an echo here of Israel's 40 years of testing in the wilderness, as they wandered in the wilderness, having left Egypt, left slavery, but not yet in promised land. You remember the story, the people of Israel had been suffering in Egypt. Moses led them through the waters of the Red Sea into 40 years of wilderness wandering, and they eventually enter the promised land. And it's as if Jesus in the wilderness is somehow reliving the experience of Israel as he prepares to lead humanity on a new journey from slavery to freedom. 
And just as Israel discovered its identity as a nation when it escaped from Pharaoh, so Jesus has his identity confirmed at his baptism. Israel is God's people and Jesus is proclaimed to be God's son. And both must struggle in the wilderness to discover what that vocation means for them. It's as if Jesus has to go back to where it all started, to revisit the wilderness of the Exodus in order to begin the new exodus of leading people from all nations, from their enslavement to the powers of sin and death, into new life and forgiveness. But Mark tells us he's not alone in this struggle. He is ministered to by angels. And here we find our final reference to the Hebrew Bible. And it takes us back to our first reading. Psalm 91. He will command his angels concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Mark doesn't give us the specific details of Jesus' temptation. We have to turn to Matthew and Luke for that, as with so much else. And if we were to turn to Matthew and Luke, we would discover that this verse from Psalm 91 is used by Satan as part of the temptation for Jesus not to put God to the test. It's firmly there in the background to Mark's much briefer temptation story. And the message is clear, which is that Jesus is not alone in the wilderness because God's angels are there with him. He doesn't need to test their presence by throwing himself from a high place. They're just there waiting on him, surrounding him with love and care. And so to us and our experiences of wilderness testing and temptation because each of us, at different times and in different ways, knows what it is to be driven into the wilderness. And I hate to do this to you, but if you've never had that experience, you probably will at some point. Each of us knows what it is to hear the deceptive, seductive voice in our minds whispering words that will take us away from God's love. Each of us has to discover what it is to do battle against evil in our lives and in our world. To become inhabited by the spirit of Jesus that drives us into wilderness, into self-knowledge, and ultimately then into the transformation of society. And in those darker moments when we're just in the wilderness and there seems to be no way out. I think there is great comfort to be had here because we too, by the Spirit of Christ, are declared to be children of God. We too are dearly loved. And we too are held within that love even through the darkest of times. This is how Christ comes to us by his Spirit when we need him most. So all these layers, all of, all of these Old Testament references, in the end, drive us to wilderness, to commissioning, to new life, to forgiveness, to the spirit at work in our lives, and then into working together to bring new life to a world that still is held in so many places by the spirit of evil. How can it be that two sisters have to spend six years in a refugee camp in Iraq? 
before a bunch of Christians in London write to the Home Office and get permission to bring them to the West End. This will not be the solution to all of their problems. They've got a long way to go. But the world is not the way the world should be. And we who are inhabited by the Spirit of Christ are part of the story of God drawing the world to himself in love. This is our calling. It's personal. It's communal. It's societal. It takes every area of our lives. So let's pray for ourselves and for our world. Eternal God of each present moment, we come before you at the turning of another year with diverse emotions and tentative hope. The past and the present meet this day and lay themselves before us for prayerful pondering. As we look back over the last year, we see in our lives and the lives of those we love that most human combination of joy and sorrow, love and loss, laughter and tears. And so we hold before you now those whom you bring to our minds. Loved ones we have lost and loved ones we have discovered. Friends who have suffered and friends who have rejoiced. Those who have borne burdens and those who have found release. And we trust that you have been present to all these varied experiences of our lives drawing all things together in your great love. As we look to the coming year, we offer you our hopes and our dreams, our resolution and our resolve. And yet we recognise that despite our best efforts, we will not be the people you have called us to be. But we hold to the hope that by your grace we will be the people you have created us to be. And so we pray for the uncertainty of tomorrow. And we trust that you'll be present with us, whatever that future may hold, as you draw all things together in your great love. But most of all, we turn our prayers to the needs of this day, because yesterday is gone and cannot be changed, and tomorrow will bring enough worries of its own. So we pray for the world to which you have come again in Christ Jesus, bringing forgiveness where there is guilt and new life where there is suffering and death. We commit to your loving care all those who face tomorrow with no hope because their situation today is hopeless. We think particularly of refugees, asylum seekers, and people displaced by war or climate change. Renew in us a concern for the weak and the vulnerable and give us courage to speak up for the voiceless, to speak out against violence in all its forms and to speak of the necessity to care for all creation. 
We pray for those who have the authority to effect change on a global scale. For politicians and business leaders, for the rich and the powerful, the articulate and the influential. May they be given the gift of empathy and the courage to use their power for the good of the many and not just the few. And renew in us a passion for change and an unwillingness to acquiesce. Give us the courage to take action against powers that coerce and control. And may we learn to be wise in the ways we speak and act as we seek to play our part in your coming kingdom of love, justice and peace. We pray for our church, for your gathered people in this place. We thank you for one another in all our glorious diversity. And we recommit ourselves to each other as sisters and brothers in Christ. We pray for all those who've come through the doors of this building over the last year, from actors and celebrities to the homeless and the vulnerable. We pray for all those who've joined us in worship, visitors from around the globe bringing greetings from your worldwide family. We pray for those who have left our fellowship and for those who have joined it. May we know today who we are created to be and may we learn what it is to be true to the calling you've placed on us. Help us to love each other to welcome new people with kindness, to serve one another with grace, and to forgive one another with sincerity. May our church over the coming year be a place of safety for those who are vulnerable and a place of challenge for those who are comfortable. May we be a community of inclusion for those who are excluded and a community of defiance for those who would exclude. May we be humble in the face of our own failings, but bold in the face of those who fail others. May we be your people, in this place at this time, created by you and called to live lives of courageous love. Amen. <clears throat>